Hi, hello, I'm Juliet Davenport and welcome to Great Green Questions. Not many people weigh up the carbon cost of their annual holiday to Mallorca or think what their backpacking trip around the world means for their personal CO2 footprint. But one thing about the global pandemic has thrown into focus aside from national health is travel. When the government told us to stay home, borders were shut, planes were grounded and we all adjusted to a slower pace of life with the horizons a little closer to home. Our national lockdown meant that global emissions caused by flying plummeted, which is an obvious bonus. But are these new carbon winds here to stay? And what does it mean to go on holiday when you start factoring in the environment? To put this in perspective, if a family of four wanted to travel to Paris, flying would emit more than twice the carbon of driving a diesel car and taking the ferry, and roughly 10 times the carbon of getting the Eurostar. At this moment, such emissions make up 7% of the UK's overall footprint, which is nearly double the global percentage figure for aviation emissions. Which is not surprising given that 1 in 12 of all international travellers are British. Now that really surprised me. So this really is a very British problem. And that's why today our great green question is, must we forego flights to fight the big fight? Helping me suss out what holidays could and should look like when we're living green are my two fabulous guests. One who has sworn off flying as much as possible and the other one who you can't keep out of the skies. Guest number one is Mr. Slow Travel himself and friend of the podcast, Ed Gillespie. Ed is a self-proclaimed recovering environmental consultant who back in 2018 took off on the slow travel trip of a lifetime as he navigated the world for a year without setting foot on what he calls an aluminium sausage. You'll hear how amazing this trip was and all the ups and downs and pros and cons of travelling slowly. You may remember him from the food episode, but to jaunt your memory, Ed is an environmental entrepreneur, speaker, writer and futurist who co-hosts two podcasts, The Great Humbling and John Richardson and the Future Noughts. Next, we have Sasha Dench aka the human swan. Sasha is a global sustainability influencer, a UN ambassador, conventional migratory species, also known as the human swan, who this month will fly around Britain in a wind and green electricity powered paramotor, attempting two Guinness world records documenting Britain from the air with striking visuals showing the effect of climate change. Now that is pretty cool for somebody who really didn't like heights at the beginning of her journey. We start the episode hearing about Sasha's Round Britain Climate Challenge, as well as hearing firsthand what it's like to fly with swans, which sounds pretty cool. We dip our toes into the carbon cost of flying and whether offsetting is enough before moving on to reframing what and where we can go on holiday. Together, Ed and Sasha were a convincing advert for slow travel, whether it's the sleeper train, paraglider or milk float. This episode is poised to reignite your intrigue Not for a staycation, because that feels a little old and boring, but maybe for a loco day. I'll let the episode do the talking. Over to today's show. So, welcome... uh, Oops. Ed, and now I can't seem to plus anybody else. Is there a technique for that? You should be able to. So I, just, just look at me, Sasha. <laughs> Ed and his huge microphone. <laughs> I 
I'm going to chunter on about radiative forcing for about 40 minutes. Ed, I'd prefer it if you didn't. Normal. <laughs> so, hello and welcome to Great Green Questions. A lot of people can feel very guilty for not being a perfect environmentalist. Is being vegan the only way to save the planet? Are bananas bad? And do we have to stop flying to save the planet? So I'm going to kick off with my own environmental confession. I'm an environmentalist, but like most people, I do like a foreign holiday or two. And more often than not, I get on a plane to get there. When the world was shoved into lockdown, our travel behaviours were thrown into focus. The COVID pandemic caused a global flight frequency to plummet. In the UK, that reduced nearly 95% in May 2020 and 75% by 2021, which is huge. For example, if a family of four wanted to travel to Paris, flying would cost more than twice the amount of carbon of driving a diesel car and taking the ferry, roughly 10 times more the carbon of getting on the Eurostar. So I love the holiday as much as the next person. But what does this mean for our planet? And especially after lockdown, everybody is looking to leave our small country and go somewhere else. This week's episode examines the well-known link between climate change, travel and holidays. So I have a fantastic panel here today. Ed, please introduce yourself. So um, I'm Ed Gillespie. I'm a recovering sustainability consultant of 20 years standing. I'm a director of Greenpeace UK and I'm involved in a whole host of different startups, which are ethical, environmental, sustainability related businesses. And I also present a couple of podcasts of my own, The Great Humbling with the marvellous Dougald Hine uh, and John Richardson and the Future Noughts where we talk about how to survive the future. So Ed, I mean, I remember when you embarked on a journey around the world, a slow travel journey. What is your idea of a perfect holiday? <laughs> well, I think everyone's idea of a perfect holiday right now is somewhere beyond their local park, <laughs> uh, which is about the extent of our adventuring over the last 12 months or so. I mean, for me, it's it's always about people, actually. It's slightly less about connection to uh, a particular place, although everyone loves a change of scene. So I'm always looking for a holiday where I'm going to meet interesting folk. And that's why slow travel has been such a big favourite of mine for so many years now, because A, it's the places in between, but B, it's the amazing and interesting people you meet along the way. And I love that. And I think that's where all the, the travel stories come from. I think we always joke about the schadenfreude of travel because for basically no one wants to hear about your two weeks by the infinity pool sipping cocktails in the sun. <laughs> what we want to hear about is when you crashed the car, when you you know missed the train, when you ended up in some godforsaken town in the middle of nowhere, when you got arrested by Chinese border guards. You know, those are the travel stories that we share and that we relish. So uh, the other thing I love about my holidays is something invariably goes wrong. <laughs> and that's what I'll be talking about for the next 10 years. I like that. So your, your favourite holidays are ones you can take a story from. Of course. And Ed, You've been on the podcast before and gave us an environmental confession that you do like the occasional steak. I'm sure you can share another one with us now. Well, I mean, I am a famous non-flyer and having done a sort of global circumnavigation flight free, my confession is I do very occasionally still get on a plane. I don't generally fly for holidays. I've only taken one flight on holiday in about 15 years and that was when I went to Antarctica. But... 
I do very occasionally have to get on a plane for work when it's completely unavoidable. I don't do it within Europe. I try to take sleeper trains and the sleeper train renaissance is a great thing. And you can basically get anywhere in Europe within 24 hours. But every now and again, when I'm sort of painted into a corner, I I do bite the bullet uh, and have to embrace the aluminium sausage once again. So I am not holier than thou and purer than snow when it comes to aviation. I do occasionally have to run that grim commercial gauntlet of the airport and ping myself across the atmosphere. Okay, brilliant. Ed, thank you. My next fantastic guest is Sasha Dench. Now, Sasha, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but you are an adventurer and adventurers tend to travel. So tell us a bit about yourself and then we'll get into what your idea of an ideal holiday is. So, yeah, Sasha Dent, I am uh, an ambassador, UN ambassador for the Convention on Migratory Species. I'm the co-founder of a charity called Conservation Without Borders. I was once a, a research scientist, but I kind of gave that up for the idea of telling stories about conservation and doing things which can bring the world of conservation to ordinary people. That's brilliant. And Sasha, you obviously migratory species studying things. You you go all over the world, as far as I understand. What is your ideal holiday? For me, COVID and lockdown was kind of a holiday. It's when I really found the love of being out gardening. I actually got to know some of the locals. I've moved to a village in Devon about two years ago, and I realized I didn't really know any of the locals still. So that was my holiday. I suppose another perfect holiday for me was right before the last expedition. I had been planning and talking about this ridiculous idea to fly with Buick swans from the Russian Arctic to the UK for so long. A friend of mine said, can we go on holiday together? It was around Christmas time. And I just said, "Okay, but the holiday has to be with one aim to not talk about swans and not talk about expeditions and not talk about me because I've been talking about me constantly. So my ideal holiday is with someone I love, meeting people I really like and away from expeditions. I love that. That's fantastic. Sasha, do you have an environmental confession for me? Oh God, I have many. As you said, I have travelled a lot. My two homes in the world, you can probably hear from my accent, I was born in Australia. I've lived half my life in Australia and half my life in the UK and a bit in other places. So I have travelled a lot. I did a lot of travelling to realise how big an impact all that carbon was having on on the world and there's nothing like having your your house burned down in the Australian fires to really look at it and have a moment of mass revelation and go wow I've been saying the words climate change is a big problem but it had never really hit home Mm. in such a strong way. Wow that's amazing. So you touched on the fact that you're an adventurer and you do lots of challenge. What's coming up now is the Round Britain Climate Challenge. Just tell us a bit about that project. So the core of it is it's me trying to see how far I can go in the flying machine. I guess nobody listening will know quite what I fly. I fly in a paramotor. So it's basically a paraglider wing that you hang off with a fan on your back, a big petrol powered motor. It's not a big motor. It's an 80cc motor. That's what I've done for the last expeditions. And I thought with the UK hosting COP26 this year, I really want to look at what is close to, to home. And really close to home is this flying machine. How far can you go now on renewable energy? Can I switch the petrol motor for an electric one. So that was the initial part of it. The second part was that 
I really wanted to find a way to make the climate change story, to make COP26 interesting for ordinary people. I've been to a few COPs and MOPs in the past around migratory species and climate, and they're pretty hard to make exciting because they really are talking <laughs> about the detail. And lots of negotiation has gone on behind the scenes. It's not very real, but how do you how do you make all those issues very real for ordinary people? And so I thought, right, even in the UK, there are plenty of examples of climate change, but in schools, I think they're still kind of talking about polar bears. So yeah. I've got this electric motor. I'm going to fly all around the UK, starting from the COP26 in Glasgow, see how just how easy it is to do a really long journey. And no one's done this before an electric motor. But that gives me an opportunity to stop and talk to people all along the way. So not only to take aerial images from above, so you can see just what our landscape really looks like. What, is, what does climate change look like in terms of sea level rise? What does it look like in terms of deforestation of lands? So you've got really good aerial imagery. But yeah, a chance to stop and talk to people all along the way who have different climate change solutions. And from all different areas, I want to speak to people in industry, those in kind of farming and nature and people who are looking at it closer to home. And have you already been up in with the electric motor? Have you already been trialling it and everything? No. (laughs) The electric motor has just arrived. Um, (laughs) So I'm about to go and pick it up. And the five spare batteries have not yet come through customs. So we're still crossing fingers and hoping that that all goes through smoothly. Because they're they're non-standard items, everything is basically proving a challenge. Brexit is giving us all sorts of issues. Yes, I can imagine. And Sasha, I mean, one of the things I always remember when I first got an electric car, the big difference, particularly if you were driving slowly, was that you could hear the bird song and you could hear everything around you. Yeah. Is, are you looking forward to that silence in the air? Because I'm assuming it will be relatively silent in comparison to what you've had before. Yeah, so it will be relatively silent, although we're the paramotor quite often that, that you want to hear some some noise because that's the reassurance <laughs> that it's all still working. But yeah, so that you still will have some noise from the propeller moving around behind yeah. you. So that, that will still be there. But yeah, it will be great to fly with with less noise. And also the really nice thing, about, I mean, there's a, there's a few other nice things about it. One of them is that the start and like with a petrol motor, if I turn my engine off and just fly like a paraglider, so if I just use thermals or use updrafts from along the coast, you still to restart it I have to reach over my shoulder grab the pull start and then pull like you know what it's like to pull start and and let go it's quite a violent kind of motion in the air and it's not always really easy so you tend to like leave the motor in idle when you rather than having to start it exactly so with the electric motor it's just a case of press the button and you're going again <laughs> and so hunting for thermals will all be really nice so we'll spend a lot more time with them like no motor no idling at all in the UK you often find buzzards and kites and things will come in thermal because you can't see air movement like you can see water you can see turbulence in water birds in flight will often look for the movements of other birds to see where thermals are so right. they'll come and fly with you anyway but yes it will definitely be more enjoyable to not have the loud motor it's no question. I'm excited about that. Wow, that'd be amazing. And Ed, I mean, talk us about enjoyability of your epic trip. So I always remember this before you set off. I think I remember talking to you a sort of flight free trip around the world. And obviously there were quite a lot of motors involved because you still propelled yourself by various things. But what, what started you on that path and how has that stayed with you in terms of that journey? How has it impacted on you? I mean, it started basically from being a sort of climate change pilgrimage, I guess. I mean, I'd been a very well-travelled 
person. I've been very fortunate to have sort of worked as a volunteer teacher for a year in Jamaica. I worked as a marine biologist in Australia and in the South Pacific. So I'd done a lot of travel, but increasingly, you know, my work on climate change just it felt like a complete, you know, disconnect, a cognitive dissonance. As I, how can you want to have this appetite and aspiration for travel whilst having a sort of planet stewing slew of carbon emissions coming out in your wake? So it was all it was very much about how do I do it in a low carbon way, but also it was about the serendipity of the journey. You know, there's a certain romance about overland travel. It's the sort of long, slow, sedate seduction and the transition of landscape, culture, people, language, cuisine. You don't get when you sort of soar above everything at 30,000 feet. And there was a lot more, as I said, cock up and chaos, but also the wonderful unexpected moments that happened when you rocked up in a place late at night, didn't necessarily where you would know where you were going to stay. And I, I miss that. I think that was one of the sort of extraordinary things about that particular trip. But so what stays with me, though, and I guess Sasha might relate to this in terms of what she was saying about observing the world from a low altitude. But it, for me, it's the kind of completely continuous photographic memory I have of that whole journey. Because when you travel through the world like that, you've got all these burning mental images in your head. So I can I can still now, even, you know, a decade and a half later, take myself back to all of those different places on that circumnavigation. And that's an extraordinary feeling, which you obviously just can't get from a plane when you're bunny hopping between airports. So that's that's what I really relish is that is that deep connection with the visual memories uh, and the experiences that that formed this this total trip around the world. And it's like a sort of holiday encyclopedia in my head and heart. <laughs> so, I mean, stepping back, guys, what is so bad about flying? Well, it is essentially the carbon. You know, you can take a cultural perspective as well about the fact that in, in one way it's brilliant because it makes the whole world accessible. And, yeah, there is this incredible technological wonder of you know long distance aviation it makes it the adventure of travel accessible in one sense but it's also that any idiot could get to new zealand in 24 hours now it's not it's not a challenge anymore it's readily and cheaply available and that you know in, in one sense that's a really good thing but it is the, the carbon intensity it is the most carbon intensive thing you can do in terms of your discretionary choices it does tend to drive a coach and horses through your personal carbon footprint when you get on a plane. So it doesn't matter if you make all the other changes in your life, you know, if you've got good energy as your renewable energy supplier or with your gas, you know, that you're cycling everywhere and you're vegan, get on a plane and, and suddenly your carbon budget is completely blown. So it, it is an issue. And as I say, I don't, I think we, we don't treat carbon as a precious resource. We sort of squander it a bit willy nilly. My personal bugbear was always the sort of city mini break. I totally understand if you have family in the Caribbean and you only get to go and see them once every few years and you're going to have to get on a plane. And that sort of notion of love miles is totally justified. But when we're pinging around in Europe uh, for weekends in cities that we never previously planned to go to, when there are perfectly viable train options to use, it just seems a little bit wanton. I always used to joke, no one, I mean, Estonia is a lovely country, but, you know, no one in the UK was banging their fist on the table and going, I demand to go to Tallinn. And Tallinn is a beautiful historic city. But it was only when Ryanair 
and people like EasyJet suddenly started saying, oh, you could pop there for the weekend, that we suddenly even considered it. And in many senses, what we didn't um, anticipate is that we would then inflict our stag weekends and our stag and hen (laughs) parties on these poor, unsuspecting European capitals, where previously, you know, they would have gone to Newcastle or Cardiff or Liverpool or London for a night out. Suddenly that was our major export. So... I don't know. I, I just feel like we we don't value and appreciate the wonder and magic of flight. I think we we use it for the wrong reasons, and it's a very high carbon intensity behaviour. But also, I think it's really worth noting here is that it's the binge flying that's the problem, and those stats that you kind of brought out at the beginning of the show, Julia, are really crucial here because seventy five percent of flights from the UK are taken by 15% of the population. Yeah. You know, it, it's not a hard-working British family going on their one annual trip abroad. It's the multiple flyers. It's the binge flyers, you know, the people who are flying multiple times, off to their second homes, off on multiple business trips, which, you know, the pandemic has shown to be largely pointless. You know, and that's the issue. And I think that's where it gets really fascinating. Is like going, well, if we did perceive like carbon and travel as a privilege rather than a right, then how would we use it more wisely and more judiciously and in a more climate responsible fashion without tipping the baby out with the bathwater, you know, and all of the wonderful things we've talked about in terms of the alternatives of slow travel. And I think that we would see a very different aviation industry, which would be climate safe, uh, fair and just. Interesting. I mean, Sasha, what, what do you think? Well, flying in itself is magical. Um, obviously, I um, and I, I only started flying as a way of getting over a fear of actually turbulence in flight. But once I discovered, first of all, kind of paragliding and then flying with with motors, but traveling, seeing the world from above, I think is really, really healthy and is really inspiring. But yeah, doing it in the way we do is is the real problem. And yeah, exactly the this kind of binge flying long journeys are not sustainable. But I also think it is a crying shame to be missing out on the the traveling via traveling via land, traveling via other means, because you miss out on all the all the stuff in between, just as he was saying. But absolutely I think everybody should be out there trying to uh learn to fly a paraglider. I was terrified <laughs> I was terrified by it at the beginning, I have to say. But you definitely can yeah see the world in a completely different way. Yeah, that's wow. like the kind of that's like tackling arachnophobia with a tarantula on your hand, isn't it? I love the fact <laughs> yeah. that you overcame your fear of turbulence. By going up on a paraglider. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It was absolute logic to it, though. It was this kind of irrational, yeah. this irrational fear. I knew that it was irrational because I still, I still got in an aeroplane because I kind of, my, the rational side of my brain said, you know, the, the safety and everything is up at a level that I'm comfortable with. But yeah, the, I just knew that the, the rational part of my brain was saying, look, you don't understand air. And as long as you don't understand air, you can't get over everything else. That's brilliant. Who should we be trying to address some of these challenges that we've just talked about? I mean, the fact that we do just jump on a plane and go anywhere we want to and, and not necessarily value it. And and the fact that the number of people I've talked to who said that they used to jump on a plane and go and do a deal in America and they can do it yeah. all online now. Is it the people or is it the airlines? Who do we need to start sort of basically poking and saying this is not a future we really need how do we get this value back into the system i think it's all of it i mean i don't i think it is it's businesses making decisions 
that you know we don't re- you don't really need to fly people have run online online workshops people have done online presentations yeah. you know a lot of my career is public speaking i've done all of that virtually in the last year i do think there is a role for government at the minute you know everyone who gets on a plane pays air passenger duty which is supposedly mm-hmm. a hypothecated tax but it just goes into sort of treasury coffers a lot of people have said you know my mate leo murray who's done a lot of work on this came up with the idea of a frequent flyer levy where so we scrap air passenger duty which means that every family might get or every individual get one tax-free flight per year but then having a ratchet tax which tackles the binge flyers so every time you get on a plane you pay more so that would disincentivize this this multiple aviation it's very mm-hmm. egalitarian it's very fair it doesn't yeah. punish the people who take the one annual holiday but it would stop the people who fly 15 to 20 times a year and I think that's the kind of thing which could be very populist and it, and would just bring a more rational use of the wonder of aviation back to ground. Definitely. I mean, if I had to think I could only take one flight a year, not that I've been on a plane since COVID, then I would think very carefully about what I used it for. I would, I would see it as a precious ticket. Yeah. And yeah. if you maybe had a specific kind of carbon budget overall per individual, then would you actually fly at all or would you use it for, for other things? For I mean, something I else. Yeah. yeah no, I, mean, I think it's about, it's about looking at all the alternatives and then thinking for every flight, just to interrogate it, you know, do I really need to do this? And if I am going to fly, am I going to make it really worthwhile? Because it's the other thing I said to the New Zealand Tourist Board when I gave a presentation to them, because they were talking about doubling the numbers of tourists. And I said, actually, doubling the numbers of tourists doesn't bring the benefit to New Zealanders. The only people that benefits is New Zealand Air. <laughs> what you should be doing is halving the number of tourists, doubling the time they stay in New Zealand. So actually doubling the amount of money they might bring yeah. into that, that New Zealand economy and halving the carbon footprint of your tourism industry. And that's the kind of thing, you know, you make New Zealand a trip of a lifetime where people would look forward to and maybe anticipate going there for five years and it will be their one long-haul flight that they do. But they go for at least a month and they take a sabbatical and they really love and immerse themselves in New Zealand rather than seeing it as something that she's just pinging in and out of. And I think, again, that's the, that's the smart way to start thinking about the way we use flight. Yeah. One of the things we've seen airlines start to move towards is offsetting. So you can, I think EasyJet became the first major airline to offset all its emissions in the UK. And undoubtedly, we'll see other airlines go that direction. I mean, is is that the way forward, Sasha? I mean, what do you, what do you think about offsetting? I, I definitely think it should just be a last last resort, but it's definitely not an alternative for changing the way we, we fly. It's nice that they're they're trying to do it, but we we definitely have to look at the at the big picture. That's not a long term solution. Yeah. And Ed, I mean the government launched its Jet Zero, great name. Love Boris with his logos and his, his brands, with a fifteen million competition to reduce aviation emissions. I mean, is that also should should we be doing that as well? Should we just be looking at behaviour or should we be looking at the technology too? I think it's both. I mean, and actually, uh, I had a very, very small hand in the EasyJet decision. I mean, I totally agree with Sasha. Offsetting is the last resort. And technology innovation is going to happen, I think, faster than people might anticipate. We're going to get, I'm, I'm involved in another project, which I can't talk about publicly right now, but there are lots of different technologies which might come into the mix. We're basically going to see 
a lot of different innovations drop into what is a relatively mature and conservative type of industry over the next 10 years. And that will be a mixture of biofuels, hydrogen, and even short haul electric aircraft. So there's lots of exciting stuff happening. But again, I always come back to the fact that I'm not a techno-utopian in the fact that I believe all of these technology innovations either save us or you know completely eradicate the problem. It is about rethinking. And so it, and it is about changing behavior and it is obviously about some technology innovation, but I I think you've got to think about those things equally. And it's only then because I think the the assumption is as I think most businesses tend to to go down this route is that the technology will allow us to continue growing forever. What tends to happen is, and you know, Juliet, you know all about this in terms of the additionality of renewable energy in the mix. You've actually got to displace, you know, yeah. that old fossil fuel energy. My suspicion is if you just follow the technology route in aviation, we'll have some places flying on electric aircraft and, and a bit of hydrogen and perhaps some biofuel and balancing it with offsetting. But the same old jets will have been sold on somewhere else and it won't have made any difference to global aviation carbon emissions. So it's only part of the solution. And I think, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves, the vast majority of the world has never been anywhere near a plane. Yeah. It's actually a tiny percentage of the global population who flies. Less than half of Brits get on a plane in any one year. So we also have to think about this in a, in a sense of fairness and, and, and justice as well. Yeah. I mean, British Airways owner recently committed to powering... 10% of its flights were sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. Is that enough or, or should we be pushing harder, do you think? Oh, there's two things. I, I think we should be really excited about the innovation. I think that's that's something that does excite me. When you look at kind of how far we've gone, well, what the Industrial Revolution took us from and to, like that's a pretty massive shift in the way we live our lives and everything else. I'd like to look back at all of that and kind of take inspiration from how fast we can completely shift and move and change our lifestyles, change what we're excited about, look at kind of climate change in the face and realise big shifts are required and see all these new innovations as being, yeah, exciting and alternatives to be able to to do things. But your question was, was, is it enough? I mean, it's it's great. It's great that we can can do that if we're going to keep on flying. But I think I'd go back again to the carbon budget. If we look at the realities of what, well, we have 8.8 billion people on the, in the world. Yeah. The the amount our overall carbon budget, if we're going to try and stick to 1.5 degrees, is pretty tiny. So you know that will make a 10 percent difference in the in that overall number of your flying budget. It's it's something. It's to be encouraged, but it's not what it's not our solution. So. I mean, if we're, if we're not going to get on planes so much and we do live on an island, which is always a bit of a challenge because however nice it would be to do cross-country travel, still not got to get across some water. Ed, what, what about taking a cruise? Would that be a good alternative? Oh, God, no. What? <laughs> COVID proves that cruise ships were pretty challenging places. But I mean, uh, from a carbon point of view. No, awful. I mean, it's actually almost as bad, if not worse, to be on a cruise ship than it is to be on a plane. What is it that that has made us all interested in these reasonably kind of narrow ranges of holidays? So the mass holidays to yeah. big resorts for a weekend or the cruise ships packed in with lots of other people in a high carbon burning vessel. What has made us all want to do that for a holiday? Because I guess from Ed and I have done very different kinds of 
holidays, which are slow. I mean, my, my flying is low to the ground, stopping frequently, meeting people. What is it that has made us all think that that is a great holiday, a great way to spend time with kids? Can we market the kind of concept of very different, low carbon ways of traveling? Is there is there a job for marketers to do to make us realize that that's probably not the, not the best way to be having out, spending our kind of relaxation, getting to know the world? I agree. I mean, Ed, greener alternatives. I mean, in terms of holidays. I mean, what? Where you? You're a father now. Um, yeah. Traveling around the world with a family would have been quite challenging. I would have thought. I may be wrong. What should we be embracing today? Would you take your your child around the world with you today? Would, is that is that a plan? Are you going to do a slow travel plus child? If if I was allowed to, I would love to. I mean, I did actually meet a woman on the Trans Siberian Express who was traveling with her son, who can't have been more than four or five at the time, doing exactly that. It was a pre-school journey. Yeah. And I also met another couple who, ironically, from Norfolk on a lake in Nicaragua, and they pulled up in a in a Land Rover with a Botswana number plate. And I was like, these guys are interesting. And got a chat to them. They'd, you know, they'd worked on safari camps all over Africa, then shipped their Land Rover across the Atlantic, driven all around South America, had a five-year-old son who'd been on the whole journey with them, who was like five going on 50. <laughs> he was such a sort of wizened old head. And there was a sort of informal school on the Finca where we were staying. And I remember his mum saying to Elliot, the little boy, saying, oh, there's a school here, Elliot. You know, do you want to go and, do you want to go and have a go tomorrow? And he just turned around and said, yes, I think I've got something to teach people. <laughs> but, so, but in answer to your question, Julia, I mean... I don't know. I mean, maybe I am a hopeless sort of a, a, a romantic adventurer, but I think the holidays uh, should always be away from what Sasha was describing. And why have we been sort of hoodwinked into mass transit tourism and this mass appeal type stuff? Why aren't we exploring all of the the hidden corners and off the beaten tracks uh and, you know even in the uk i, yeah. I don't I, you know you say oh we're stuck on an island and so i don't see it like that i kind of see especially when i speak to people who've never been to you know the far-flung parts of britain i remember speaking to a girl in glasgow and i was i was there with my rucksack and she was about to go traveling with her boyfriend and she had asked if my rucksack was good and i said where are you off to she goes new zealand and i and I asked her, so I said, have you been up the west coast of Scotland? And she was like, no. <laughs> so, and I just, I often get frustrated with folk who are like, they're desperate to go and see other. Uh, and yet they haven't explored this wonderful, perversely diverse little northwestern European rock on which we're very, very lucky to live. Especially if you live in London. I was involved in a project a few years ago, which was called World in London. And the idea was it was international holidays in the capital. And I, I actually came up with the idea when I suggested it to a couple of teacher friends who said they couldn't afford to go on a foreign holiday. And I said, look, you live in one of the most diverse cities in the world. I said, take your week that you're going to have for your holiday, pick a different country every day. And then, you know, make up an itinerary. So they did a day in India. So, you know, they went out, found an Indian art exhibition, found an Indian musician who was playing, went for an Indian meal that evening. The next day they did Brazil. Then they did Jamaica, you know, and then they did Little Italy. And it was like, you know, they had the most astonishing week. And it was like being on holiday because they were immersed in a different culture uh, and experience every day. And I think that's the sort of creativity we want because, it's, holidays are about experience and experience is yeah. something that you can conjure yourself. 
You, you know, you can even do it. Alan de Botton talks about this in terms of the philosophy of travel. You know, so put on your holiday eyes in your own neighbourhood. Because you go abroad and you're suddenly like, oh, you switch on all your senses. It's like, oh, look at the colours and the smells and all the difference. And isn't it wonderful? It's like, well, do that in your own neighbourhood rather than walking blindly and stumbling through it because you've done it multiple times. And I mean, I, I've done this in Brixton, you know, where I've lived for 25 years. And you tune into the psychogeography of the place and you see it through those holiday eyes. And then suddenly you're transported and you transcend. And I think... That's the kind of stuff which is the soulful aspect of, of what travel could really mean if we, if we approached it differently. I was going to say, you mentioned the family traveling around Africa, and I, it reminded me of a moment a, a couple of years ago at NEP Estate, one of the big rewilding projects in the country. And I guess I would like to see rewilding and similar projects as being uh, a major focus, potentially even as a, a kind of holiday contribution for people over the next few years. There is no doubt, being a foreigner, that Britain has had a lot of its wild and nature removed. And so I had this moment at NEP where I was being driven around and there's a small platform that's been built up a tree that you can get to up a ladder. And we walked, kind of climbed up it, looked out over a load of what was considered scrubland, so stuff that would normally be cleared from farmland. It was rough scrub, and they were introduced big animals there. So there was a scrape where there were a few large pigs, a few different deer species. And I looked out over that landscape, and I honestly had a moment of going, God, this is like anywhere I've been in Africa. That is yeah. It doesn't feel like Britain because it's not being tamed. Why can't we start recreating places in this country that are a bit wilder and we will have the same kind of moments you take your kids to Africa for? And there are still are plenty of places where you can do that, but there could certainly be more. And I would love to see for the next 10 years, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, people look at that. How could we kind of use our spare time, our holiday time, potentially to input into bringing back some of the, the wilder places that could be here again. Sasha, I love that. Uh, amen to that. And, and that's amazing, Sasha, because that, that is, as you say, something like the Nepa State is like, it's a reminder of what was lost because I don't think yeah. people have that perception. You know, you sort of, if, if you don't understand the narrative of the English landscape, you don't realise exactly how denuded and tamed it actually is, do you? You know, you, you think, I mean, I grew up in East Anglia, you know, which is basically the grain bowl of England. So it's vast, you know, industrial agrarian fields and, and there's very little stuff left. And I remember visiting an incredible woodland called Staverton Thicks, which is old pollarded oaks, which are hundreds of years old. And, and I had, I almost broke my heart because... I then realised what we'd lost, you know, the fact that this little tiny fragment yeah. was was yeah. uh, such a vivid encapsulation of what centuries-old mature oak forest should look like. And then yeah. I looked at every other forest and almost wanted to weep and going, how did we do this to all of this wonder? Uh, only this tiny patch is there to, to tell us what a mature, wonderful, diverse ancient yeah. woodland should look like. Yeah. And we have the same on, on Dartmoor. Wisman's Wood is regularly mentioned yeah, as being yeah. a wild oak woodland. And when I went there for the first time myself, I jogged up to it 
and I saw that this tiny little strip in a valley. It's really small. And then in talking to people about general, the general level of wild, I know people are talking about the fact that we need more forests, more wild places. But I think there is a question of perception where I would say flying is a really good thing, particularly paragliding, is that from the air, you can really see what a landscape is made up from. But often when you're on the ground and looking at an angle, all the different like small patches of trees, they add up together. So it looks much more green than it is from the air. I don't know if you understand the kind of perspective issue you get there. Or when you're walking around a woodland, the the path will be veering around. So it feels bigger than it actually is from above. So, yeah, it's definitely what I would, I'd like to see people focus on. And it's, it's interesting because I think I love the picture that both of you paint in terms of what we could look at in terms of what I think. But I do think there's still a reality that when people go on holiday, part of the thing they actually want to do is not have to cook, not have to clean uh, and not, not have to do those day in, day out things and just kind of switch off. I mean, I, I guess we just need to be more creative because potentially you could even do some of those things in your own home. You just ask somebody to come and look after you. (laughs) One of the most famous travel books is by Xavier de Maistre called Voyage Around My Room, where uh, he turns on his travel eyes and and talks about all the objects and artefacts in his room. And I wrote a piece on that for Condé Nast in the first lockdown and saying, you know, how many people actually actively go and relive a past holiday? You know, you may flick a couple of pictures but you know I, I wrote this article about saying go back to your previous holiday adventures go and immerse yourself in them and yeah. go and really reconnect and try and draw up all the kind of wonderful memories because we don't in our sort of consumerist mindset we're like next ticked off the yeah. box you know what's the, the next thing I'm gonna go and do and experience without relishing and savoring all the wondrous things you've already done Oh, yeah. can, I tell you, can I tell you a brief trick on how I did that for the Russian Arctic, knowing that I would only ever do that once, flying across the Russian Arctic, beautiful colours, mad places. I made a playlist to listen to that I was only ever going to play and listen to flying across the Russian Arctic. And I, I only pull it out on special occasions where I just want to relive it. Mm. I hear those songs again and I'm straight back there. So, wow, beautiful. I like that. Yeah. I like that. And it, what's fascinating, actually, or maybe maybe this, I don't know whether this is a positive thing or not a positive <laughs> thing, but the, the order for hot tubs, I think, has gone through the roof in this country. So people are trying to create that kind of feeling of being on holiday. Because I, I, I don't think we can get away from the challenge. Our, our weather is, can be a little challenging from time to time in this country. And feeling warm is something definitely we relate to being on holiday, is it not? But, you know, as an Australian who's been sunburnt so many times that I can't count anymore, I actually love the British variability yeah. of weather. Yeah, I, I think we're very lucky. We have a lot of weather. I feel have a lot. Yeah. We have a lot of weather. I think we should see it through that eye. Yeah. And we touched a little bit on the fact that the UK has lost some of its wildness. One of the things about tourism is it is quite destructive, isn't it? When you when you kind of look at, I think Bali's looking at garbage emergency, Machu Picchu eroded. I mean, some of these places where we do truck hundreds of thousands of people off to. How do we bring that to people's attention? Because obviously... Ed, you're touching on the kind of concept of New Zealand and sort of having less people but more value. Is, is how, how do we make that transition? Yeah, I mean, over-tourism is a genuine threat. You know, if you look at places like Venice as well, you know, totally closer to home, it's 40,000 visitors a day. 
And it completely disrupts the whole, not just the ecology, but the whole socioeconomic dynamic uh, of the city. You know, it, it becomes that sort of cliched sort of goldfish bowl life where it's just inundated with these temporary transitionary folk. And there's, there's, there isn't the same stable culture, let alone economy of people actually living and working in the city in, in areas other than tourism. So I do think we are at risk of overwhelming the very things we go and see. I think the epitome of that was, you know, when people were dying on Everest a couple of years ago, where, you know, that need to visit, experience and conquer was leading to people sort of stepping over the bodies of other climbers en route yeah, to the summit. That's a bit grim. Uh, and for me, that was the apogee. That was like, OK, that to me is a metaphor for what's happening where we... We're, our desire to go and see places is actually destroying them in the process. And something has to give. And that's why that New Zealand example is quite relevant. And I think what you, what you get down to, because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to restrict access. Otherwise, you make it an elitist, an inaccessible thing. Yeah, that that's the balance, isn't it? That's the balance, you know, because I don't want people to say, oh, well, you have to, gonna have to be only if you can afford to go to you know to Machu Picchu or to Venice, so should you be allowed to go? Somehow we have to rationalise and and restrict in a way which which doesn't destroy the very things that we we pretend or purport to love, and that's going to be tough. And I don't quite know what the answer to that is. I think partly it is what I was saying before about spreading ourselves more thinly. You know, travel which isn't about hot destinations. It isn't about the tick box list. It is to other places, which can be just as impressive and just as rewarding and just as meaningful. Yeah, I, I, as I say, I, I, I don't quite know how you 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 nail this one. I mean, yeah. I think Sasha's point about meaningful holidays as well, which could be involved in eco ecology or restoration or some kind of community work. Yeah. I think let's travel with real purpose. And I think, again, people will look back. They may not necessarily think that's what they want, to your point, Juliet, people want people want escapism and you know and and, and a suntan and and laziness and lolling. Well, yeah, we we do want that, but that was also that's a function of our ridiculous busyness and overwork and stress <laughs> of our normal lives. And actually, if we were able to rebalance yeah. our lives at home, then the prospect of going uh, and doing you know what we what we somehow describe as work. But getting our hands dirty, meeting and uh, and hugging other people would not be seen uh, as a kind of working holiday. It would just be a, a new a new human experience and a hu new human experience con connecting with the bigger picture. Yeah, and I want yeah, quite a lot of people. I think book a holiday based kind of on autopilot. Like it's holiday yeah. time coming up. What is holidays? Holidays are X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Maybe everyone kind of rethinking, what is it that I really want? Do I really want time on a beach or do I really want yeah. time on a beach with lots of other people so my kids get to play with other people? Or do we have we actually never really thought about what a holiday is? Because a lot of people come back from a holiday actually needing a holiday still. So there's, there's definitely something broken in the system. And I mean, yeah. Ed, Ed, you've got a lot of background in marketing as well. You must be able to find a way of m marketing this. Concept well, I, I agree with you, Sasha. I mean, I, I always slightly get very stressed about booking holidays because it's it, it also, I mean, especially if you're booking a holiday with somebody else, because you never all want the same thing anyhow. <laughs> Here's a solution. 
a big percentage of the joy of holidays, the anticipation. That's why we all book yeah. them in January, you know. So my radical solution, book them in January, look forward to it for five months and then cancel it, go do something <laughs> else. <laughs> That's a bit like eating something and spitting it out. <laughs> if it works, if it works. It yeah, works, maybe. You know. I don't know whether any of you have tried to book any any holiday accommodation in the UK. It is very difficult to book a holiday. And, and as far as I've understood, anecdotally, accommodation prices have skyrocketed here in the UK, which again comes back to that kind of affordability and accessibility. I mean, what can we do about that? I mean, is, is that just about making the UK rethink its destinations or do you think we need more intervention in that or do you think the market will adjust or, or is this just a temporary blip oh i mean it's definitely post-covid there's a mass of bookings i mean i i actually have an airbnb and the bookings went absolutely through the roof with people offering to kind of pay more to oust somebody else wow also, ruthless Ooh. i'm also in quite a touristy village and I, i'm actually not not even open so there you go so it definitely is there's a post covid blip but i think that i think the market will settle down but it, there's so many places that aren't kind of hot spots for tourism that people could go to and again the kind of slow tourism and i'm a massive fan of camping i'm really happy to rough it also because coming back home then is such a pleasure to come back to all the luxuries so yeah i'd say definitely Good point yeah i like where, that. where i grew up in australia we had well is, is in the bush in a house we kind of built ourselves and so i grew up with very simple stuff like we had a canned toilet that we had to empty every uh, every week or so we had a generator we turn on every now and then it's now well then before it burned down it was solar panels only the house was kind of open we didn't have even have a phone to start with and i know from that that i was completely happy as a child had so many options of things to do so I suppose that I have that that confidence as well behind us that there's so much fun we can have with a lower carbon kind of lower luxury um, existence whether that's how you live or how you have your holidays I think could be just as good yeah and I think we talk about we now talk about staycations which which actually feels very negative doesn't it yeah I mean I I, I don't know about you but staycations doesn't sound exciting it doesn't it doesn't it's it's not going to make us all it's like just staying where you are it just need to come up with a new word for that as well yeah i think we yeah. do i think we do well, it's, it's just a holiday isn't it i mean i you know building on sasha's point i mean my hope would be that people because they've been compelled to holiday in the uk this year will rediscover a love affair with mm-hmm. the uk and they won't see it necessarily as being shortchanged or not having the traditional continental or intercontinental escape, that they might actually fall back in love with yeah. some, some places a bit closer to home. And I don't think that's beyond the realms of possibility. And equally, you know, the kind of the, the camping phenomenon, it's just as hard to book a campsite at the moment as it is to book a, an Airbnb or a holiday house. And, you know, camping is very accessible. And I hope, I don't know whether this will be the case, but so I'm not going to make a prediction, but I think we might just have, discovered something that we'd blindly stumbled away from and then it might lead to a longer term shift. So Sasha I want to ask you the question I mean in the UK where are you excited to go to where where's I mean you're gonna you're gonna fly all the way around it I mean if there was one place that you could spend some time in now today if you could was setting off what would make you most excited about going to in the UK do you think? Well I there are there are lots of them to be honest yeah. i i love the islands off scotland 
absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. To be honest, though, I mean, one of the things that I have loved to do and I loved to do when I first came to the UK was also caving. I mean, this might sound a bit unusual. <laughs> wow, especially with somebody up in the air. Wow. I, but under, underground Britain is pretty spectacular and magical. And I, neither do I want to cause like a massive kind of run on visits to caves. But just to add another layer, I suppose, to the different ways that we can explore a place. I mean, seeing your place from above gives you a whole new uh, new view on it. And obviously with, with paragliding, you kind of learn to understand the air and fly with that and you get a bit of an insight into the life of animals and how they have to think. But I think similarly about underground. I mean, it does open up a whole new new world of what's going on. But there's basically lots more layers of, of travel and exploration that we could do at home, apart from getting to know your community, getting to know people in different walks of life. I would say, yeah, get it, go above and on underground as well. But the Scottish islands, you can't really, you can't really yeah. be there. Yeah, they are amazing, aren't they? I think they're the most beautiful place in the world, almost. Oh, well, it's, it's when you show people pictures. I mean, I, for years, you both might know Dr. Kate Rawls, the sort of ecological philosopher. And I'm at kayaking, sea kayaking with her many years running around Arasaig. You know, and you'd show people pictures, you know, yeah. blue skies, sunshine, yeah. mountains, yeah. tiny islands, crystal yeah. clear waters, white sand beaches. And people go, where are you? It's like, yeah. Scotland, yeah. Scotland. <laughs> and weirdly, weirdly, there is this a phenomenon with that when the sky is really kind of dark grey and moody even, somehow the, the, the land and the water can be even more bright. I, there's definitely been moments that I've thought, this is definitely rivaling Australian, New Zealand beaches. Easy. The water might be a little bit cooler, but... Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for your imagination and your thoughts. We've kind of redone the way holidays could be, given some thoughts, and let's hope that we can see a way forward. So, Sasha, I'm going to ask you our concluding question. So, do we need to take a flight to go on holiday, or should we forego them to fight the big fight? I think that's a question for everybody to figure out for themselves, but they have to keep the key fact in mind that if we're going to be sticking to 1.5 degrees, then every individual's carbon budget is 1.5 tonnes. So if you were to calculate that across you and your family, is flying in a big, what did you call it? Metal sausage. Is flying in a big metal sausage how you would spend some of your carbon budget? Or are there much more interesting potentially closer to home more rewarding ways that you could spend that money and spend your holidays and the big big flights across vast distances to go to places far away mean that you are missing out on all the places in between and all the people that you could have met in between is that really what we want to be doing in the future 20 seconds sasha I think I was a little over. <laughs> I'm so sorry. She didn't fly there, Ed, so that's good. We went on I'm the journey. Sorry. I liked it. It was perfect. Ed, do we need to give up flying to go on holiday or can we give up flights and fight the big fight? I don't think you should look about it as giving up flying. You certainly don't need to fly to go on holiday. And actually, if you do, don't see it as a constraint or a cost or a loss see it as an enormous opportunity to rediscover the soulful, heartfelt, gut-stirring future of travel, which will be meaningful for both you and the rest of the world. 
Spot on. You see, he practices yeah, this pressure. That's yeah, why he got it. I can see his eyes moving back and forth. He'd even re- written that. Oh, no, 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 there's nothing written there. I was, no, I was watching Megan's up. clock. He definitely made watching, that up on the spot. I was watching Megan's clock. I couldn't see <laughs> Megan's clock. I'm so sorry. I was told to minimise yeah. Megan. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. That's been brilliant. Yep, thank you very much for having us. Really interesting chat. Absolute joy, as always. Thank you so much for listening to Great Green Questions. If you like the show, then please rate and review and hit follow to never miss out on an episode. If you have a Great Green Question of your own that you would like us to answer, please feel free to get in touch with me on Twitter at Davenport Julia or Insta at Davenport.Juliet. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week.